Uh, the first place I want you to open up to is Romans chapter 8, verse 9. We're going to look at a couple verses first this morning. And then this morning we're going to look at two sacraments. Uh, these are the sacraments of confirmation and the sacraments of the Eucharist, also known as Mass. Uh, these two are two of the three sacraments called the sacraments of initiation. So there, if you're unfamiliar, there are groupings within the seven sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist are baptisms or are uh, sacraments of initiation. And then there's the sacraments of uh, anointing the sick. I'm not going to be able to list them now for you. Anyways, there's the other two, and then two are grouped as well, and we'll talk about those when we get to them. There's sacraments of healing, which would be confession and anointing of the sick. And then there's the sacraments of, uh, I think it's called the sacraments of communion, which are marriage and holy orders. So anyways, there are groupings within the sacraments. So this morning we're finishing out the sacraments of initiation as we compare Catholic teaching versus what we believe. And so we'll look first at the sacrament of confirmation. So first to do this, I want to look at Romans chapter 8 verse 9. And in Romans chapter 8 verse 9, the word of the Lord says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so that last phrase is really key to what we're studying this morning. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Very straightforward. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to God. Uh, another verse related to this is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, which also has to do with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And so there in verse 13, we see that when we believe in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. That's the point where we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, when we receive him, at the point of our belief, when we're, you might say, when we're converted. And those are relevant, those two verses, because the sacrament of confirmation is described like this by the Catholic Church. So these are quotes from the Catechism. By the sacrament of confirmation, the baptized are more perfectly bound to the church and are enriched with a special strength of the Holy Spirit. Hence, they are, as true witnesses of Christ, more strictly obliged to spread and defend the faith by word and deed. Or another place it says, it is, the sac it is the sacrament, this sacrament, which gives the Holy Spirit. And thus, they also state that this is the sacrament 
where the sealing of the Holy Spirit takes place. So whenever confirmation happens, uh, which generally, at least in the West, in the Catholic Church, happens around a certain age, right? Usually there's uh, some catechism, things connected to this as well. But the confirmation, when that happens, Catholics teach that that is when you receive the Holy Spirit and are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes uh, the Catholic Church or even uh, charismatic churches who would teach something very similar, they'll, they'll point to the book of Acts and they'll think about how people believed in Jesus, but then it wasn't until a later point in time when they received the Spirit, uh, for instance, Pentecost or other places. And so I'll, I'll address that just briefly. Uh, but based on the verses we already looked at in Ephesians and Romans, uh, we see that's not the case. It's clearly stated we receive the Spirit at conversion when we believe, not really a two-step process. So what about the book of Acts? You may remember some of this from last fall when we talked about the Holy Spirit. But essentially, the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost in the book of Acts is a continuation of the salvation work of Jesus. So Jesus lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, rose again, ascended, and is seated on high at the right hand of God. And that's the point when he's seated at the right hand of God that he sends the Holy Spirit. And so in the book of Acts, that's what we see at Pentecost is that sending of the Spirit. And so because the Spirit's coming is connected to the, the salvation work of Jesus, that's why it was still in process in the book of Acts. But now that all of Jesus' work is completed, right, he sat down, he's not continuing to sit down, he did that once and for all, and now he's sent the Spirit. Because that's completed, now we don't receive the Spirit in this process, like we see in the book of Acts, but at the point of belief, at the point of conversion, now we receive the Spirit, which is why we have these clear statements uh, in other places in the Bible about receiving the Spirit at the point of our belief. And so those would be some places in the Bible where we would disagree with Catholics about what's happening at confirmation, about it. Uh, being receiving the Spirit and really strengthening. They also talk in terms of it strengthening the grace you receive at baptism. So again, this idea that you're continuing to grow in your good standing with God as opposed to uh, at the point of salvation, we have good standing and that doesn't change. So those are the differences. So that's really confirmation. That's the first sacrament. Uh, before I move on to the next one, are there any questions, comments about that sacrament before we move on to uh, the Mass of the Eucharist? Okay, so let's move on to the second one, which is kind of related, but for this I want to turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. So the Eucharist... Uh, that is what we call the Lord's Supper. Uh, there's slightly different connotations by calling it something different, but Eucharist just means Thanksgiving. 
communion, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, depending on uh, denomination or religion, is sometimes called differently, but they're all referring to the, the Lord's Supper. Uh, but there are some different connotations, depending on what title you use. So there's a reason we call it the Lord's Supper, generally speaking. Uh, and that might come out as we look at this. But in John chapter 6, we're going to read a couple of more extensive passages in this chapter, starting in verse 25, because it gives us really the background for why the Catholics think what they do about the Eucharist and then why we disagree with them. So, John chapter 6, starting in verse 25 when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is right after Jesus fed the 5,000. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And this verse is important for our understanding. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, And what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So notice the emphasis on belief again in verse 35. Verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, skip a few verses down to verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, who, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. 
This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And so this is uh, really a sampling here in John chapter 6 of the Catholic teaching surrounding the Eucharist, which is that the bread and the wine actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. So they'll base it on passages like this where it talks about actually where Jesus says you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood to partake in him. So they believe this is called uh, transubstantiation, that the substance actually becomes, the elements become the body and blood of Jesus during the Mass, during the Eucharist. And so they would look at this passage and they would say, this is Jesus talking literally. We would look at this passage and say, no, this is Jesus talking symbolically uh, instead of literally. And so that really is uh, a difference of how we look at these passages, that we would view them symbolically, they would view them literally. So why, why would I say this is symbolic? It's not literally Jesus' body and blood. Well, I think we see that in verse 29. I think we see that in verse uh, 35, where we see this emphasis on belief in Jesus. Because before Jesus gets into the metaphor of his body and blood and eating it, what does he say? The, the people ask him in verse 28, what do we have to do to do the works of God? And Jesus says, verse 29, you have to believe. And then he continues to emphasize believe in him throughout the first part of the passage. And then it's only after that that he goes into this symbolism of what it means to partake in him. And really he compares himself to the manna in the wilderness. So just like they ate of the manna, so you partake of Christ. And that's uh, a, not a literal comparison but a metaphorical comparison. Because, again, Jesus has already emphasized, you don't actually eat me, you believe in me. That's how you partake of me. That's how you receive eternal life. He specifically says that in verse 40, you believe in me and you have eternal life. Well, what is the point of eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Having life. And so Jesus has already told us what that is. It's actually belief. So that's why when he says this, and the people were confused, they took it literally at the time. Like, what is he saying? How do we eat him? This cannibalism, and this is against the law. I mean, this would be against the law, right? They weren't supposed to have blood. They weren't supposed to eat flesh, right? But Jesus is speaking not literally, but symbolically, metaphorically. Believe in me. This is how you partake in mm -hmm. eternal life. This is how you receive the bread of life. Eternal sustenance, eternal life is by believing in me. And so that would be an example, and we see this uh, in other passages as well, that they would point to as literal instead of symbolic. So we would view this as symbolic, and when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it doesn't literally turn into the body of Jesus. The bread, uh, the bread doesn't turn into his body. The cup doesn't turn into his blood but it's a symbol uh, reminding us of what Jesus has done. One more verse to look at 
or set of verses in Hebrews chapter 10 related to this idea of transubstantiation and how the elements of the Eucharist actually turn into the body and blood of Jesus. And they believe that this happens every single time that they have Mass. It is every single time, uh, you know, all across the world, wherever it's at, turning into the body and blood of Jesus every time it happens. So in Hebrews chapter 10, I think this is an apparent contradiction with that. So Hebrews chapter 10, specifically verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so what does this say? That Christ offered one single sacrifice for sins. So if Christ died once for sins, then why is his sacrifice recreated every single time that the Mass is practiced? Now, I want to be fair. Catholics would not say that Christ is, I mean, they might uh, mistakenly use the terms, but the official teaching of the Catholic Church is not technically that Christ is re-sacrificed every single time the Mass occurs, but that his sacrifice is represented. So they do want to affirm that Christ died once, and yet it really becomes his body and blood so that you really are partaking in that sacrifice each and every time. So even though they would say he's not being re-sacrificed, his sacrifice is continually being presented again, which seems to go against what this is saying, that he, as the high priest, presented his sacrifice one time, and that was sufficient. And so not only, uh, I mean, you know, you could mince the details on that. Is it being sacrificed more than once, is it not? But the bigger picture is that they believe that the blood, this is how our sins are forgiven, this is how we're made continually right with God, is by this uh, continual sacrifice of Jesus at the Mass, that this is what actually forgives sins. That's a statement in the Catechism, that the Eucharist forgives sins, uh, that it's applying continually reapplying the effects of Jesus' sacrifice, his forgiveness, his cleansing. Every time you take the Mass, that is being applied to you again. So again, you have to think in terms of what Catholics believe about right standing with God. It's not a one-time thing, like we believe, which is done at the point of belief. But it's a continual thing that then has to be uh, perpetuated until all our sin is removed. So it's an ongoing thing. I, uh, I go to Mass on Sunday, and I receive cleansing and forgiveness, but then I commit a sin on Monday, so now I need to have that reapplied to me, and it's this continual, ongoing thing. Uh, which is why last rites often includes things like the Eucharist and confession of sin and anointing of the sick, because they want to make sure you're covered at the last possible instance before you die so that uh, it reduces the amount of sin in your life. That's the, the thinking in the Catholic system. But really, that's the heart of our disagreement with Catholics. 
that Jesus' blood doesn't need to be reapplied to us every time we sin. I mean, what did, what did Jesus say to Peter when he washed his feet? Peter said, no, Lord, don't wash my feet. Wash all of me. Jesus said, no, you're clean, right? Just, just your feet need to be washed, right? Uh, and we, we understand from that that when Jesus saves us, we are made clean. Yes, we have sin that clings to us, kind of like we talked about Sunday. We're, we're made saints. We're perfect in the eyes of God. As, as this continues, this is why Hebrews 10 is so important. If you look at verse 14, it says this, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what does that say? We're still in the, in the process of being sanctified. We still have sin in our life that needs to be eliminated. And yet, God has already perfected, past tense, he has perfected us for all time, right? Hebrews 10, 14. This is an incredibly important verse, maybe the central verse of the book of Hebrews, that God declares us perfect even as he continues to sanctify us which really is our main disagreement with all of the Catholic system, especially when it comes to the Eucharist and the reapplication of Jesus' blood. And so we understand that through repentance, through faith, we receive forgiveness. We, we understand that it's one time for all. We've been perfected whenever we believe and that it's finished. We don't need the reapplication we don't need to be re-saved, so to speak. But we simply need to continue in the process of sanctification, of uh, confessing our sin and uh, growing in holiness as Christians. And so, what's the importance of this, of the Lord's Supper? This is our disagreement, but we don't just want to focus on uh, we think this about the Bible, they disagree. right? What is the importance of the Lord's Supper? It is a remembrance. Uh, do this in remembrance of me. It's a symbol. The, the bread, the cup, just as we partook Sunday, is a reminder of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Specifically, that when he did that, he completely cleansed us from every sin that we will ever commit. If we have believed in Jesus, we are perfected. In the eyes of God, we have right standing. We are declared righteous, even though we continue to grow in sanctification. We continue to eliminate sin from our lives because we still have sin that's clinging to us that we need to eliminate. But that doesn't affect our standing in the eyes of God because he's changed us at our core. And so really, the Lord's Supper is this incredible reminder of the, the grace of of the goodness of God that he's given to us through Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished for us. That it's not something we have to do in order to receive it, but he's already done this once and for all. And so we remember, as we remember what Jesus has done, it keeps the gospel, really. It keeps his work on the cross central in our minds. And it, it reminds us to think on things above. Right? As we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded we're not setting our mind on things here, uh, but we're setting our mind on things above, the things that the Lord has done. And it's that 
that really that spiritual significance of the Lord's Supper that reminds us to turn our eyes to Jesus, to look on him, that reminds us of our union with him and our union with each other. And so the Lord's Supper is, uh, is crucial, is uh, such an important ordinance that the Lord has given us to remember the gospel. Uh, we don't believe that it has the same effects that the Catholic Church does in actually becoming the body and blood of Jesus. But that doesn't mean we think it's less important because the reminder of Jesus' work on the cross, his work on the cross is central to our life as Christians. Christ is our life. And so we remember that as we remember the sacrifice that he gave to make us one with him. Uh, and that is the sacrament of the Eucharist, also known as Mass. 